Welcome to Changing Places, the podcast that believes places are powerful agents of positive social transformation. Each episode, Dean Keith Diaz-Moore from the University of Utah's College of Architecture and Planning will take you behind the teaching, research, and practice at the leading edge of innovation occurring in our college. Through informal conversations, you will learn the emerging issues, why you should care, and what you can do about them to change our world for the better. Welcome to Changing Places, a periodic podcast focused on how the places we create are agents for transformative social change. I'm your host, Keith Diazmore. Today we're joined by Dr. Alessandro Rigolone, an assistant professor in the Department of City and Metropolitan Planning at the University of Utah. His line of research centers on planning for urban green space and health equity through the lens of environmental justice. His current work covers three related areas, planning and policy determinants of equitable park provision, drivers and resistance to gentrification fostered by new parks, and the public health impacts of urban green space on marginalized communities. His work has recently popped up in really interesting places, like NPR's Science Friday and the New York Times. Alessandro, welcome. Thank you. So why don't we begin by unpacking some of the language you're likely to use today? So what do we mean by gentrification, and specifically green and blue gentrification? All right. So uh, gentrification is a very charged term that means different things to different people, depending who you ask. From a researcher perspective, it has been defined as the influx of uh, more affluent people, often white people, and of economic capital to areas that were previously disinvested. Mostly these areas that were previously disinvested are areas where Black, Indigenous people of color live, and as well as low-income people. So it's, it's an influx of new folks and, and, and new money into an area that was lower income. Uh, oftentimes, that leads to displacement of uh, residents who've been there for a while. And, and that's where, you know, the, the big issue arises, and, you know, conveying to homelessness in some cases. Green gentrification is a, uh, I, what I consider a particularly insidious form of gentrification because uh, um, it is a, a gentrification that is uh, fostered in, in part by the creation of new green uh, spaces like parks, uh, tree planting, etc. Those green spaces are sorely needed by low-income people of color uh, who tend to experience health disparities. So uh, there is a kind of very hard conundrum to, to digest. Do, you know, do we want more green space or we uh, advocate against that to avoid that, that green space will ultimately displace from our homes? And so there's, you know, this is a sort of a fight and a conversation that has been going on for probably for the most part after the 2008 Great Recession in, in many big cities, but also in some mid-sized cities around the country. Yeah, and it's something that I've been studying. The blue gentrification term, I've never heard, but that probably, you know, would refer to, to something like, yeah, gentrification driven that I, by a blue space project, like let's say like stream daylighting or the creation of, a, say, a river walk along a previously dilapidated river. Right, right. It sounds like the, the, you know, kind of the initial observed problem that underlies your work is this difference between neighborhoods, you know, that some seem to have more parks or perhaps better parks or better access, 
as opposed to other neighborhoods. How would people recognize that? What are, what are typical examples people could observe wherever they may be? What would they be looking for? All right. So let's talk about Salt Lake City. Okay. So let's think about driving your car or riding your bike all the way up from, let's say, the East Bench all the way down to the West Side. And what you would see as you ride or drive is that you see increasingly fewer trees actually many fewer trees, you know, as soon as you maybe cross State Street and you start entering neighborhoods that you have residential mixed in with big commercial big box stores as well as industrial. So you're mostly going to see significant reduction in tree canopy and shade with consequences related to, you know, the urban heat island and sort of summer heat. You'd also, considering Salt Lake City, you would see that uh, the big regional parks that people tend to use from all over the region are all on the east side, which is, as we know, more more white and more affluent. Let's think about Liberty Park. Let's think about Sugar House Park. Those are places with bigger playgrounds, more amenities, uh, simply more things to do, and and by the way, beautiful trees. So you know, you it's it's rare to find similar places on the west side. Other things that you see in uh, worse maintenance, low-income communities of color, and you know you might not see it, uh, but you might experience it if you live there, crime. Parks in low-income communities tend to have more crime issues, and, and, and people in, in, in many occasions in those communities don't even go to the park because it's not simply not safe to be there. And so the park becomes more of a nuisance than... An amenity. Interesting. And then th- this happens beyond Salt Lake City, right? This is common in other urban areas? Oh, absolutely. I just wanted to provide sort of a local example because we're here. Myself and others have done research all across the country as well as internationally. I did a literature review on these issues in the in global South countries and found similar issues. Low-income areas of uh, uh, fewer acres of parks, and they have parks with fewer amenities, uh, poor maintenance, and bigger safety issues. So why is this a problem? Why is this something we should be concerned about, that, that some neighborhoods seem to be privileged in terms of their park access, let's say, as opposed to other neighborhoods? Parks are promoting public health, and they are promoting social cohesion, and they're also places of resilience. If one thinks about... Uh, Right now, there have been uh, parks used as testing sites for COVID, parks used as vaccine sites, parks used at places where people get, you know, food, uh, food banks operate there, or in, in the summertime, parks and rec centers are, are cooling places. So think about all the benefits that parks bring to our society, and that question is easily answered. I would also add that it is illegal to discriminate based on race and social class in in terms of who has access to certain amenities. There are a number of environmental justice and civil civil rights laws that prohibit such discrimination. So it's not just, uh, I guess, unethical from my own perspective, but it's also illegal based on the law of demand. I understand. So it sounds like neighborhood planning and the planning for parks and, and urban design around that produce way upstream health effects, but you were just talking about kind of service provision as well. Why should more attention be brought to this fact? Well, a few things. One, 
we know that the physical environment is a big determinant of health. You you can be exposed to positive things like green space, or you can be exposed to negative things like air pollution, noise, heat. Parks promotes physical activity, social cohesion, and, and, and mental well-being. And also protects you from, you know, those air quality issues, that, those heat, that heat island effects as well as noise. And, and trees too, not just parks. We're talking about green space broadly. Second, uh, we have disparities in life expectancy that are as high as uh, 10 years across the neighborhood of the Salt Lake City. 10 years, you know, really? Example, That's amazing. Yeah, between Glendale and the avenues, for example. And there are similar issues or even bigger gaps in life expectancy that I've seen in uh, Los Angeles, for example. We know from research that green space uh, is linked to life expectancy. And so if we do bring more green space to those communities that need the most, we might see over time a reduction in, in those gaps. I also want to make an economic argument here. There is an economic burden for all society when some folks are left behind in terms of health. You know, we're not a socialized healthcare system like countries in Europe where I'm from, but overall, there's things that show that we end up paying more one way or another. We just pay afterwards. And, and so it'd be preferable to, to spend that money and spend less of that money, actually, when doing upstream interventions like green space. Fascinating. So since this inequitable provision of, of green space has such bad impacts. How, how, how do we create these situations? I mean, what is it about planning processes or, or, or policies that lead to this? And, and how might we fix that? Well, I mean, I could give you one big reason. It's systemic racism, uh, for the most part. We know social class is, is so closely linked to race and ethnicity in this country. For the most part, over the late 18th century and, sorry, late 19th century and 20th century, we created a segregated society through things like redlining, uh, racially restricted covenants, realtor practices that only sold homes to black people in black neighborhoods. And so we created sort of cities that are split in half. The powers in that city were able to direct investment in green spaces, mostly to the white, more affluent parts, and, and leaving the, the parts where people of color live behind. And it's a bigger problem than parks themselves. It's a problem of, of you know, again, racism and residential segregation that has led to, to more services, any services, really, including good schools, libraries, being more prevalent in white, wealthier communities. How do we reverse that? There has been signs around the country, let's say in the last 10, 15 years. Los Angeles and California are sort of leading the way with the park funding measures that are targeting parks for low-income communities with real criteria so that the micropolitics of a city cannot overturn what bigger state or county policies write, right? So having clear equity criteria and funding measures and how we allocate our resources is fundamental. And along those lines, I'm, I'm currently involved in a project funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation where I'm working with the Prevention Institute to understand what policies, what are the effective advocacy strategies to implement more of those 
equitable funding measures around the country. Great. Well, when that study's done, we're going to have to have you back. Okay, Alessandro? I'll be back. Well, thanks, Alessandro, for joining us today. This has really been utterly fascinating. Dr. Alessandro Rigolone is an assistant professor in the Department of City and Metropolitan Planning at the University of Utah. If you found this work interesting, you can find out more by visiting www.cap.utah.edu. I'd like to end by thanking our listeners for taking the time to join us and for spreading the word using the hashtag Changing Places. On behalf of the Changing Places podcast, hosted by the College of Architecture and Planning at the University of Utah, I am Dean Keith Diazmore. Take care, everyone. Changing Places is recorded in the audio studio of the Marriott Library at the University of Utah. Engineering and editing services provided by Head of Media Studios, Robert J. Nelson.